and welcome to episode 25 of the VSuit Podcast, the audio-only virtualization podcast with all the answers you'll ever need on life, the universe, and hypervisors. Joining us tonight is John Walsh. Like some of our most successful guests, John is a sysadmin manager for a large university where he assures me he's not just the VMware guy. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, it's great, great to have you on. Um, I think we've actually been referred referred to you by um, not only my uh, colleague uh, Rick, who had some great fun presenting with you at uh, VMworld. Um, how did you did you enjoy that? Yeah, that was that was a good time. We did a we did a session on Thursday morning, so nothing like getting one of the last sessions of the of the week. And Rick and I also did a presentation last December at the Gartner Data Center conference. So. We've done two now. Ah, so you're an experienced uh, duo. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Rick's, Rick's great to present with, so it's uh, yeah. it, it's uh, he, make, he makes life a lot easier. He always always sets you up for a good uh, a good audience, I think. Oh yeah, he uh, he definitely knows how to engage the audience, keep their attention. That's that's for sure. So so what were you, were you doing on just um, I'm, I'm, presumably if it was with Rick, it would have been about Veeam, but were you talking about sort of some of the um, allied technologies that you used alongside Veeam, or was it just sort of mainly around that particular part? Yeah, basically it was a um, kind of um, our virtualization journey over the last several years, how we got up to 1,400 virtual machines. We talked about the Veeam pod architecture that we created using one uh, new Dell servers and direct attached storage to basically just do you know the land free or the you know direct sand backup of our of our VMs. Okay. Um, you know, talked about entry storage. We're using just you know, general best practices, tips, and stuff we learned along the way. Oh, okay. So yeah, as I understand it, part of your VMware estate is using one of the the relative newcomers uh, to the um, you know the storage party uh, being Tintry. Um and they do some pretty cool stuff from what I've heard and what I've seen. Uh, you know, we we do run it in our own labs, but. It, it it sort of got me thinking um, that apart from yourselves, I don't see I haven't seen that many actual deployments of a lot of these brand new storage uh, arrays. Now they, there's loads of startups; they're all doing something crazy. Some of them are, are doing something to directly sell a technology, you know, hoping to get acquired. Some of them are selling product, and the Tidri guys certainly seem to be about selling a product, which is great. Um, but they make a lot of noise, but you don't necessarily see too many of them deployed in the real world. And I kind of wondered why. You know, that's that's a good question. I think a lot of it has to do with it's the newer the newer comers. You know, in the last year or so that you're seeing coming on the market are purpose built appliances. They're you know built to take advantage of flash. They're not using bolt on technologies like some of the arrays from you know the last several years where they might have been traditional LUNs and now they bolted SSDs on it and added. Um, different types of caching. They're actually architecting these specifically for the flash characteristics and much more of a commodity-style hardware with the secret sauce and all the work taking place in software. So I think a lot of people are a little little skittish of it because the typical SAN admins and you know everything about LUNs and storage pools gets kind of thrown out the window with them. Well, the thing is, I've read through a lot of the documentation of these kind of appliances, and I've never really seen anything referring to the amount of cash that they have. That's true. A lot of them, the whole cash concept kind of goes out the window. Like, I, I can specifically speak for Tintry because I've actually, you know, we actually own some, or own one, and I've, you know, we've been playing with it for, geez, about the last year and a half now. We're one of the early beta testers on it, and they don't use the SSDs as cash. Everything gets written directly into Flash, so everything's read and write from Flash, and as data isn't used, it gets migrated down onto the, the SATA storage. So it's not unusual to have a 99, 98%, you know, if not 100% hit rate from that solid-state um, solid drives, the SSDs, because they're, they're real secret sauces in their software and where they're doing the compression and dedupe, so they're really cutting everything down in that, on the, the Flash layer. Okay. Um, I mean, do, do you say, are these ones, you know, like Tintree, I mean, another one that uses uh, commodity hardware, but again, have, have got some pretty trick software to make that hardware do a specific job, or something like Whiptail. So, again, they've got an all-SSD array, and 
but it seems to be very pitched at an extreme niche part of the market. Um, so, you know, in this in their case, I guess it's the absolute top-tier workloads. And trying to sort of implement those alongside a traditional storage one, I mean, surely you don't want to necessarily replace a, a known, reliable, not to mention re- biblically expensive um, storage array and fabric with something that says, actually, oh, you no, know, throw that all away, replace it with some of our brand new, you know, all Ethernet connected, 10 gig stuff, and you, you don't need your big old iron again. Um, that's got to make, as you say, people very, very nervous. Um, and I'm not too sure if, you know, putting a, a storage admin's hat on, would I want to stake my, stake my job on that? Yeah, what, what does the old adage go on? You know, nobody's ever gotten fired for buying IBM. True. <laughs> you know, so I mean, the, the typical, you know, the big iron, the tried and true sand technologies have been around for years. You know, the, the whole concept of lunds and tiering and everything else is much more commonplace than um, the norm, per se, in the market. But where you're finding a lot of these players coming in, I mean, you've got stuff like Violin and um, Nimble and Nutanix and all these other um, Extreme I.O., which is now part of EMC, all jumping into this market because they found a niche. They found areas where they've got a lot of changing workloads than what we used to have, you know, three, four, five years ago. There's a lot more demand in IOPS, bursty-type workloads, a lot more random, randomized I.O. that they need these performance boosts that, you know, if you're doing 15, 30... 48 disks in a single storage pool, you're getting, you know, 1,500 to 6,000 IOPS. Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty uh, pretty high um, storage storage it's, profile. Um, isn't, isn't that argument about old, uh, tried and true and tested uh, technology the kind of, uh, kind of thing we went through uh, an amount of years ago when we talked virtualization in general. True. Is is, it, it, is it, the storage shift... Yeah, is it just a new... the next iteration of the next big thing and there's always going to be resistance from those who didn't who don't want the next big thing because they're quite happy with the current old thing. Well, uh, from, and storage is just the latest thing to hit that cycle. Well, let me just... as a, as a kind of an old-school storage admin that was a storage guy before I was a vSphere guy... Just say that um, I know for a fact Fiber Channel is, is pretty lossless. I never really had many problems other than firmware with, with Fiber Channel. But um, when it comes to iSCSI and when I managed my first iSCSI arrays, I had quite a few problems uh, dealing with the um, or, or anything that's Ethernet uh, storage. I had problems because I would have to go down to the network guys and if they had done some misconfiguring in their end, then it was just uh, almost a nonstop battle. Yeah, that's, I mean, I definitely have to agree with you, you know, outside of firmware, you know, firmware drivers or maybe an occasional failure on a board or something in the fiber channel environment, it's it's pretty reliable. I mean, it's just it just kind of sits there and works um, and definitely very, very lossless. I mean, we just, we're in the process, one of our data centers, we finished an upgrade of our, um, our sand fabric, and we're currently working on an upgrade in our our primary data center over the next couple weekends as well. So I don't really see, at least in our shop, Fiber Channel ever really going out the window and going away. Um, We've never been a fan of iSCSI in my environment, so when we started looking at alternatives, we ended up bringing in Isilon several years ago. When Isilon first came to be, we brought them in for video streaming, so that was really our first um, venture into... um, Ethernet-based NFS and SMB storage. And as you said, you kind of lose some of that stack management because you're passing it down to the network guys. But with everything becoming so virtualized and, you know, the whole virtual data center and software-defined data center concept, you know, software-defined splat, networking, storage, etc., it's all kind of rolling back up into the same groups anyways. So, so what made you go go for the you know the new, the newer types of storage, John? If you know, you said you've already got a, a really well established fiber channel fabric, a, a lot of time, energy, and money uh, invested in it. Um, where did the requirement come to say, well, actually, we need to do something different. We need we need to, we've, we've got a, 
um, a requirement that we need to exploit, and we can't meet that requirement effectively with our current um, hardware. Yeah, what what happened with us is we started looking to deploy um, vCloud Director. We got um, a request from the schools and departments to really go away from having their own individual data centers in closets, basements, you know, classroom space, and wanting to centralize it into the data center, into the central IT data center. Um, you know, and over the last couple of years, there's a lot more server-hugging mentality where they didn't want to um, relinquish control of their physical servers or even their virtual servers, but the last few years, that's shifting where they don't want to get the calls at 2 a.m. saying they have a hard drive failure or power supply has gone out or power has gone off to the data center. So but I like the idea of virtual server-huggers because, you know, we've, I've always picked on... Um, server huggers themselves because you know they were my main combatants when I was doing uh, consolidation of machines. But virtual server huggers is a whole new one. I suppose it's people who you know who don't want to lose their data center. Exactly. Well, I mean, if you think about it, those physical server huggers transition to running their own virtual clusters. You know, either in the VMware space or you know other hypervisor space, and then they don't want to give up running their virtual environment. So they've now become virtual and physical server huggers. But we, we were able to break the boundaries with that, and we, we did some proof of concepts with vCloud Director and actually partnered with two of the schools to provide infrastructure as a service for them. So, so you, you almost sort of formed, um, I'm going to have to use the C word, a, a community cloud for, for, those, for those local schools. Yeah, essentially, well, we call it the NU Cloud because I work at Northwestern University, but we... Um, we ended up, um, you know, it's a pure private cloud in our aspect because we're still trying to get that definition of how to put university data into a public cloud, per se. Yeah. So we implemented the private cloud, and in doing so, I ran into the problem of we're providing infrastructure as a service. So we're going to be letting them self-deploy images and servers and services through a service catalog. The point is, we already do a hosted environment. We're running about 1,400 virtual machines today. Out of that, probably over 800 of them are basically, we deploy the VMs and turn them over to the school and department. They run them and manage their own service. So the catch there is we do the deploying in a lot of cases, manage and make sure they're being patched and backed up and everything else. In this aspect, infrastructure as a service, we're giving them resources. They're taking it from there. So the one thing we didn't want to do is um, with about one and a half petabytes of spinning disk on the data center floor, I've got two SAN storage admins. We really didn't want to add in more stuff into their plate. We wanted the whole cloud environment to be managed end-to-end -end by the virtualization team. So when we started looking at solutions, we wanted to find something that was simple, scalable, and easily manageable. Oh, okay, so it was really sort of yeah, providing, as, as the, the British phrase uh, says, horses for courses. Um, that yeah, you needed to sort of uh, not sort of uh, create create a new silo, but to help spread spread a bit of the uh, the administrative workload around. Exactly, and you know, pretty much the traditional Linux and Windows and you know the different teams that made up the operating systems have more or less you know merged together and formed you know our virtualization team. So we really have kind of the the sand storage guys, the virtualization team, and then I've got a couple guys that. Um, are more like the senior Linux, Unix people that are also running the high-performance computing environment. And usually so, what I've noticed from you know, all my time in the States, the universities in the States kind of function in the old-school way with the separate teams. With uh, virtualization coming in, do you, I don't know if you can answer this or not since you're in kind of a public forum, but do you, do you notice that kind of like the old-school SAN guys and uh, uh, the old-school SAN admins and the network guys and stuff are they're kind of fearful of, of losing their, their, their garden, as, as to speak, so to speak? Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, there's some other peer institutions I work with that are going through some reorgs and changes, you know, just because of that. They're, you know, the storage guy only talks storage. He doesn't want to know anything about the virtual servers or the host to talk to it. The networking guy only wants to work with switches and routers. Um, we're a little more progressive in, in the last couple of years. We got it, we started going a little more service-oriented, um, whereas in our data center, we're more of a service provider, per se. We either provide services for the enterprise ERP-ish 
systems or um, hosted services for the schools and departments. So we're kind of a you know end to end management on the enterprise stuff or just um, hosting providers for the non enterprise services. It, it seems quite. Um, I was going to say, uh, from, from my knowledge of it, the academic um, side of uh, IT, it seems that you're quite progressive and, in fact, operating in a, a typically non-academic fashion. Yeah, in fact, I was I did a panel with VMware talking about vCloud usage, and when I think they interviewed about 12, 12 institutions on vCloud usages and just IT organization, they actually said we're more similar to enterprise IT than some of the other um, higher education places they spoke with. Okay, that's quite. Uh, I presume it was a compliment. Uh, so. <laughs> I took it as a compliment. Um, you know, some of the tried and true, you know, twenty-year-old, thirty-year-old, thirty-year um, term Linux admins and Unix admins I had there still like the old days, but yeah. you know, it is what it is. F- as, to, to borrow one of Ed's words, they're fearful of everything, possibly including natural light. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> So uh, yeah, that's that's pretty cool. So do, do you think there's definitely a, a a good situation for running the old alongside the new? Do you, you know? Do you run one just to take over, sort of in parallel certain tasks, but nothing critical, so that if it does go wrong, well, you've got a fallback that's more traditional. Um, do you keep a plan B behind um, just in case that you ha- if you have you know gone out on a limb and bet what is essentially your professional reputation and your job on technology X, and technology X suddenly has a critical failure um, that you've got an easy fallback to go, well, actually, yeah, we knew it could go wrong, so we've, you know, we put, we put a, um, a fallback plan in, in place. Right. Yeah, you definitely have to, you got to look before you leap. You just can't get something and jump into it. I mean, I first discovered Tintree... Jeez, it was about a year ago in July um, at the um, Indiana VMUG and met with Tintree, met with Kieran Hardy, who was actually one of the the co-founder of the company and the former, um, formerly the, um, I think he was the vice president of research and development before Harrod came in over at VMware. Yep. And talked about Tintree, saw it, and my initial reaction was at the time I was trying to figure out how to get predictable, scalable storage for vCloud. And, you know, I was looking at lesser expensive alternatives, some of the smaller, the smaller bottom end, um, mid-tier arrays. I was looking, you know, specifically at the time the VNXE had just come out. I was looking at that. Well, that gave the capacity, but now I had to deal with storage pools and um, service, serviceable pools inside of vCloud. Because unlike vSphere, I can't sit there and say, I want this database I want logs to go on, you know, RAID 10. I want the data to go on RAID 5 and split up the VMDKs easily. vCloud, you sit there and say, which pool do you want it in, gold, silver, bronze, and everything ends up there. So I wanted something that was easily managed and something that kind of took that that workload away from the end users because they're just going to want to deploy VMs. They're not going to want to pay attention where they're putting them. So we we wanted a dual controller product. They had one coming out, and we actually started beta testing it in October. So we played with it October, November, December, January before we actually even started running production workloads on it. So we really kicked the tires and worked on it. Okay, so you have um, the the facilities and the, the time to do a, a a fairly long and thorough evaluation for it. Yeah, we were we were able to do that because we were in a pilot phase for vCloud Director. We knew that we were going in that direction, but we had um, two of the schools were. Um, actually deploying workloads and semi-production workloads in the uh, in the private cloud, and we were able to move it off our traditional SAN and then to the, the Tintree de- device, and they can continue their eval in that mode. So it, it worked, up, worked out well for us in that capacity. Plus, since we're doing it as an eval and beta period, we actually were able to throw a ton of other different type of workloads at it. We were able to throw traditional Oracle databases at it and got some, you know, some surprising... Surprising performance results, stuff that wasn't wasn't quite expected. Okay, so you were, what you were throwing things that weren't the traditional sort of VMware workloads that it's designed for. Yeah, we were well, we were we were throwing some workloads that we didn't originally anticipate would be a good choice for it, 
um, we we threw some production enterprise Oracle databases at it, and we're in the sand in a thirty disk pool. We're seeing you know roughly six thousand IOPS, you know total capacity in that shared pool. Um, we had one database that was running a job every day that was taking about an hour to finish. We moved it from the traditional sand array over to the the Tintry box and it was finishing in fifteen minutes. Because wow. what we actually noticed was. On the graphs and the mechanics with Tintry, you're able to go down at the VM level and see what all the IO metrics are in the per VM as opposed to per LUN on a traditional SAN. So we're watching the box, and it was getting up to 4,500 IOPS in these little speak, you know, little peaks. But the whole IO on the LUN on the prior to that was getting about 1,000, 1,100 IOPS. Okay. So let me ask a quick question that you mentioned earlier. You said that it. Uh because there's no cache, it goes to SSD, writes directly to disk, and then um, kind of in the back end, writes down to SATA, right? Yeah, it's, um, with Tintry's architecture, the best I understand it, um, the blocks that aren't used get demoted down in the SATA tier. Okay, so if you have a really heavy database, it's going to sit up there on the SSD, right? Right. Okay. It sits there running, it's up in the SSDs, so what's neat about the array is there's a lot of burst capacity. The box can deliver, you know, 90,000 IOs, or 90,000 IOPS, possibly even a little more than that. Um, and in our testing, the original testing we did, we deployed everything over one gig Ethernet. And Tintree's only NFS, and it's, you know, completely VMware. So unlike some of the other, um, next, I'm just going to call them, for lack of a better term, next-generation storage vendors out there, it's only for VMs. They're yeah. only... It's only a VM appliance. Um, it's all NFS. Everything appears as one 13.5 terabyte data store in the case of the, the T540, the model that we're using. So, you know, we had it hooked up over one gig Ethernet. We had several VMs running in the cloud deployment. We also threw some Red Hat 5 VMs out there and started running some load tests on it. And through IOZone, we're sitting there watching the thing get up to 30,000 IOPS over a gig Ethernet. And we're only about 75% saturated on that one gig pipe. Cool. Okay, so, so you're, you're still doing one gig Ethernet. Uh, we're, not, we're in the beta phase, we were in production. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that isn't the point I'm, I'm trying to make in a way. But uh, the thing is, I just recently looked at a Fusion IO uh, implementation for a client here locally, which will probably be be implementing in a week or two, where we put some Fusion I.O. Uh, accelerator cards into some HD blades, hoping to do some of the same kind of performance uh, enhancements for their database solution as well. But the Fusion I.O. cards are located directly on the, uh, on the motherboard, so they kind of, uh, you don't have to go through the pipe to get the acceleration you'd get from the flash drives. Right. Well, I'm assuming with the Fusion I.O. cards, are we talking about physical workload? No, virtual. Virtual workloads. Okay. Yeah. So, in the case of the Fusion I.O. cards, if I'm not mistaken, well, the big difference is those are really asking um, or acting more as a cache as opposed to um, a storage-based solution, per se. So, you're, yeah. you're, you're caching out all those writes. Um, Tintry actually... You could use them both ways, but that's the implementation we're looking at. You, you could set up a Fusion I.O. card with uh, as a local data store for that particular blade, uh, but that kind of limits you because it, it wouldn't be shared. So you would have to run a VSA on top of that to share it between several blades. Yeah, otherwise you you'd use it as write cache. Right. There, you know, the big the big difference is. Um, you know, you're, you're throwing all your VMs on the T540. There's a lot, you know, in the case of Tintree and all the other flash-based appliances, there's this just this huge pool, pool of IOPS that, depending on the architecture, there's a lot of reserve capacity that it can handle bursty workloads a lot more than, you know, the traditional SAN arrays. And it's not doing the tiering, per se, that most of the, the other arrays are doing, where it's actually moving data up and down. You know, in the case of Tintree, it only drops it when you're not using it. So it does it ever it moves it back up as needed. If it goes back to access it, yeah. If it's you know the way they have it set up and with dedupe that they do, um, a lot of the data is just able to reside in flash. 
you know, obviously, you know, they've, they've got a whole dashboard of metrics where you can watch and sit there and say on a per VM level and on the whole array level what your flash hit ratio, how much is hitting on the flash itself. And then when it does have to go down, you know, there's also NVRAM and, and other bits to help you out at that point, too. Okay. Um, I don't necessarily believe this, just as a disclaimer, but I'm going to throw this in here uh, just as an old-school storage type of idea to kind of see how this fits or see how you would answer. Uh, the old idea is that as everything is writing to a flash drive, it gets slower and slower over time because there isn't a specified defrag uh, method that works at the moment with Flash. Um, what happens when you're writing to this array for five years straight? You know, that's a good question. Um, they do, and that would be a, a more detailed question to ask the Tintry folks, but they do have the algorithms in there to um, cache it out, write it out, and move it. I believe they're also using the MLC, the Intel MLC SSDs in their array. So they've been doing a lot of testing on life scale and seeing what, what the life expectancy are on the disks. But like any solid-state drive, there is a definitive um, life expectancy. When I've, then asked, the other I've asked that question to a lot of vendors. I've gotten everything from uh, the answer, the disks are pre-dirtied, whatever that means, to uh, <laughs> we don't know. Pre-soiled disks. <laughs> nice. I don't like the sound of yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. They come with dust. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's special dust, though. It's made from unicorn horns. <laughs> yeah. The the way I kind of look at it is, I'm expecting. In fact, I had some interesting discussions at VMworld about, you know, looking at vSphere and VMware in general. It's like, okay, 10 gig Ethernet is going to last a long, long time in terms of bandwidth to ESX hosts. The other thing that they're looking at is with the new. Um, the newer Sandy Bridge, Ivy Bridge, and future Intel CPUs, the CPUs are handling everything you need for a long time. But the thing that we're noticing is, you know, where you may have done five, six years on storage arrays and maybe three years refreshing your host and RAM, you might be able to extend out your life on the host and RAM because the CPUs are still have enough oomph in it, but you may have to start refreshing your storage sooner to get to keep getting some of these newer and better features. Oh, fair enough. And, and when it comes to, to refreshing, I, mean, I know you talked about a dual controller one, but one of the, the big differentials for an enterprise SAN was the fact that the whole data path was sort of 2N redundant, that you could upgrade, you know, you could do firmware upgrades, you could do pretty much everything without having to take the SAN down, that they mm -hmm. were designed to be up all the time. Um, and okay, not everyone needs that. Um, in fact, I think the, the percentage of customers that need it versus the percentage of customers that think they need it um, is actually relatively small. Um, but the, certainly the ability, you know, you don't want to be having to reboot, uh, uh, for example, say it's a um, clever software. If that software runs on Linux and there's a kernel patch that, come, that needs to be applied because, you know, Linux does need patching like everything else, um, can you do that without having to reboot your entire storage network? We've we've been able to do that on the the Tintry box because it is we did wait to get the dual controller model, so there are two separate controllers in an active passive fashion. But they share a common bus and cache between each other, okay. so you can actually upgrade one, fail it over, upgrade the other one, and flip back. Right. So I I have done hot upgrades on them. It's you know it's a typical. I think their disclaimer is it's about a thirty second failover. I may may be wrong on that, but I've seen them more averaging in the ten to fifteen second range. Okay, yeah, I was just uh, about to ask what the what the failover time was because I've seen yeah. some some other vendors mid level arrays. I won't name names, but yeah, during those thirty seconds or so, that's enough to crash your VMs. Or oh, I've seen something. some some um, fiber channel disks at a disk based you know mid tier arrays take one hundred eighty seconds to fail over from one controller to another. So we might and, be thinking of the same one. Yeah, it's got to be the slowest the 180 seconds of your life. Yeah, well, what usually happens is, especially in your Linux workloads, you turn around and um, you end up with a bunch of disks mounted read-only. 
And unfortunately, if they're web servers and such, you don't notice it until a day or two later when somebody calls up and sits there and says, or sits there and says, what happened to my logs? I have no logs written out. And then you realize it's read-only. Ah, out. Out. So I've, I've not seen anything um, fail to, to quite that extent, although, again, power outages, certain... Uh, storage controllers seem to be less reliable than others when it comes to sort of sensitivity to power. Um, you know, it's a, always one of those times when you you're very glad of having good backups when you suddenly lose it, a couple of shelves of your uh, your array. Yeah, hopefully um, you get some good non-volatile cash too in case something bad happens. Yep. <laughs> okay. I guess we get to move on to the next topic. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, we did that. Um, very sort of quickly back back to, to VMware, I think. Um, to VMworld. So, yeah, drop, dropping back to uh, VMworld for things. Um, we've got VMworld Europe coming up extremely shortly. Hopefully we'll, uh, we'll get this particular episode out before... Uh, certainly, Ed and myself traipsed off to Barcelona, and we need to find a suitable mascot for uh, to represent Christian uh, at the, uh, the the live uh, recording that we'll be doing at the community's lounge. Uh, any suggestions for a suitable mas- mascot uh, will be if you could uh, just please post a comment on the uh, on the, the blog uh, after after this episode, and uh, we'll uh, we'll try and honour as many of those as possible. Uh, or just put up a poll. Yeah, I, th- I think I think we've tried good. that before. Where, where's your mankini, Chris? I've I've, <laughs> I've I've eaten it. Don't worry, I've got something much. <laughs> we all worry. I've got something much much better than the mankini for the, this year's bean party. Um, I have I have um, I did post on Instagram a um, a sneak preview of of the shoes that go as part of the outfit, and I think those that have seen them will uh, appreciate quite how marvelous they are. There are basically hey, hey. no prices for guessing the color. <laughs> there, there is a reasonable chance that it could feature something in that green spectrum. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to comment because I did see them on Instagram. Yeah, it'll it'll be green and and possibly to quote someone fabulous. I think would be the word I would use to describe the outfit. Um, fabulous is definitely the, the way I would go. It'll be it'll be a memorable occasion. Um, uh, it'll definitely be interesting standing next to Hans with it. Yes. Yes, that could be could be fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, it's, it's looking like it's going to be a really good uh, show this year. Um, equally as busy at nights um, as it is during the day. Uh, I think one of the, the the big things that might well hit people as a surprise is that Spain stays up late. You know, people in in Spain people don't go out till sort of ten thirty, eleven o'clock at night. So the nightlife in Barcelona is, you know, till six in the morning. Um, Sounds a lot like Vegas. But Vegas just—it's the nightlife just never stops. I guess. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty constant. So I don't know if it's going to be quite as wild as a, as a Vegas-based event, but uh, I do get the feeling it's possibly got a bit more of a party atmosphere than uh, than Copenhagen. Wonderful as Copenhagen is, um, it should be. I think it's going to have a very different vibe to it. What do you reckon, Ed? Um, yeah, well, I, I'm personally a fan of Scandinavia myself. Um, you, you need to kind of dig for the nightlife, but once you get, um, once you find the proper place, um, it might it might be better than anywhere else, Christian. Once, I, maybe once you, you dug in, <laughs> Christian, maybe you know what I'm talking about. I have absolutely no comment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I get where you're coming from. <laughs> yeah. Oh, fair enough. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, I think it's gonna. Each of the the European VM worlds has had a distinct personality. Um, you know, Cam was very much different to um, to Copenhagen, and I, I think Barcelona is going to bring its own dynamic uh, to it as well. You know, the show itself is going to be fantastic. Um, and more importantly, we've got uh, we've taken the the community lounge concept has, has you know really moved on this year. The the, the first uh, V brown bag um, lightning talks that were something that you know as, as an idea has been bashed around by 
certainly the three of us, it's been bashed around by Tech Field Day attendees. Um, and finally, Cody Bunch and uh, I think it's Alastair Cook and the rest of, rest of the Brown Bag crew um, made it happen um, and did a series of lightning talks. Now, to those who've never heard of it, a lightning talk is a very short speech. It's uh, around 10 minutes. Uh, it's supposed to be snappy to the point and you know, only trying to deliver a couple of really key take-home facts. And yeah, this year they've uh, they had it at the community's lounge in in Vegas. And John, you you were able to to make uh, not Vegas, sorry, San Francisco. Yes, I was going to say uh, San Francisco this year. Vegas was last year. Um, yeah, I was you I was actually able to um, make it into the hang space and catch a few of them. You know, with with everything else going on, I unfortunately didn't get to hang around and watch all the ones I wanted to watch. So I'm really excited to hear that a lot of them are recorded and will be posted shortly. But it, it was great. I mean, you, you went in and saw a lot of um, presentations that didn't get accepted for VMworld, and people were out there giving their 10, 15-minute spiel on it, and it was a lot, of, a lot of great knowledge being shared. Brilliant. Did you, were, were, so you managed to see a couple of them, and I wonder, did, did any of the points work? Can you remember any specific points or any, any one of those? Because I know I'm, I'm personally going to be doing one. Um, on It's you know a bit of a tech support for dummies um, and by dummies I mean other techies it's, it's going to be about how to, to best engage a support function uh, for a techie because not all techies started off on a help desk um, but and the ones that did possibly need a bit of a reminder of you know how to best uh, to get a good service out of those techies um, <laughs> so, so yeah, what, what sort of points did you um, take home from, from the brown bags well, they kind of varied in topics. Some of them were more overarching ideas and views. Um, the founder of Cloud Physics presented some of his concepts and some of the uh, the rationality and um, concepts of why the product's there and what it does to some people throwing out some specific stuff with PowerShell or you know Power CLI and you know specific applications, um, specific um, concepts regarding view that you know you probably wouldn't have found in a regular session oh wow that's that sounds like it's um yeah quite quite varied and yeah. i i personally just like the short format because i've got a massively short attention span and whilst you know the the sessions there that go on for an hour are good um a you can only get a certain amount of those into a day and b they eat up a lot of your day uh, uh, on the the show floor and um i'd much rather probably watch them at a later date whereas the short ones you can grab one, you can sit down for 10 minutes, take a break, take in someone's um, lightning talk, and, and then get on with the rest of the day. Um, it's a format that you can really really easily dip in and out of. Um, so we'll, I think we'll suit that whole hang space idea very well. Right. Now, I'm not sure in Barcelona if they're going to be laid out the same way, but in San Francisco, you're able to go in there. They had snacks and drinks. You know, what there was available, there wasn't as many snacks and drinks as there were in Vegas the year before. But, you know, you can go grab that, bring your lunch, and watch. You know, watch one of the lightning talks while you eat, even. Oh, yeah, that would be definitely... Or come watch the live 30-minute V-Soup. Yeah, yeah, that'll, that'll be on. Uh, we might well have some random guests. It depends on who we call her at the time. Um, so, if you... Depends see, I, I guess that'll depend on who's there eating at the time. It's always <laughs> fun watching people eat. So. Sometimes we let them eat. Sometimes I, I have been known to kind of grab someone walking by. Um, but if you do come and see me and you'd like to be uh, a, a special guest on VSoup and you think you've got something something good to say, then uh, please come and find me either on the, the Beam stand or I'll probably be in the uh, the community's hang space recreation area um, and uh, we'll have a chat. Well, I think you're going to have to call it the special edition of pea soup because it's going to be the physical soup instead of the virtual soup. <laughs> yeah. oh, I'm not too sure I want to call it pea soup. No, that, that, yeah, that sounds really weird. Speaking of which, so Ed, your lightning talk. Yeah, yeah, my okay. I'm taking a little. I'm taking a little flack for the name. It's called virtualizing uh, workloads in the face of disaster. Yeah, but the thing is, Ed, on the Tech Talks Barcelona schedule page, the, the disaster part of that isn't there. And you're listed. Use for truncation error. (laughs) Yeah, but the consequence is that it reads Ed Servin virtualizing virtualizing workloads in the face of Matthew Northam. (laughs) 
that doesn't seem like something that should be recorded. Yeah, and talking about the, the whole food and drink thing that John was saying, I don't know if people are going to want to eat with a title like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, it's certainly... It might well get some a lot of people wanting to see it, but for all the wrong reasons. Um. <laughs> but seriously, the topic is about... I recently had a... Uh, had a, uh, a surprise trip where I had a fire in a data center and some smoked up servers and I had to uh, I had to try to get them back online and the best way I could to uh, to bring them running in a stable state was to P to V every single one of them I could I could get up so uh, basically I'm gonna be talking a little bit about it's kind of a high-level talk about how virtualization a lot of the guys who are deep into it forget forget a lot of the, the real basic uses, that the reason why we first started using it in the first place. Oh, fantastic. I, th- I think that's, uh, could be could be a good one. Um, you know, with, with talk of, of the clouds, sometimes it's good to bring people's feet down to the ground and, as you say, do some proper frontline um, IT work. Yeah, from the oh, trenches nothing. kind of stuff. Yeah, oh, very much so. Because his stuff can't be up in the cloud if it can't run on the ground. Exactly. <laughs> I like that. It's interesting to look at the uh, the schedule as well. I think there are, let me just check here, but I think there are one, two, at least two sessions being run by someone who's been a guest on vSoup before, and then you two guys are presenting, and then we're doing a vSoup live. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely speaking like a who's who. Yeah, sounds good. I like that. (laughs) We should try to get VSoup added into the name of this V brown bag thing somehow. What do you guys think about that? V brown bag soup? Well, no, I mean like V brown bag soup soup presents. Yeah, V soup in a brown bag. (laughs) If they're going to be passing out the little brown bags in Europe like they did in San Francisco, maybe you can get a little soup sponsor and drop them in there. I've still got the a bag of the bag of V suit pins, which I think I will try and uh, distribute into the the brown bags. There you yeah. go. Um, so then, yeah, then you two can run on five hour energy like we did in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, we had some had some good stuff. For that. I think there might even be some of the Veeam branded energy drink kicking around as well, which is uh, which is pretty strong stuff. At least it's not Kool Aid. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, we don't, we, don't, we don't do Kool Aid. And let me guess, it's green. <laughs> uh, there's a good chance of it. I think. I think it's it's almost as good as brawn, though. Really, it's it's what the body really craves. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a that's a uh, obscure movie reference, actually. No, there's a ter- yeah. I was going to say there's a, there are very few people that would get that, but those that do know what I'm talking. It about. actually it took me a second or two. <laughs> it's, it's got electrolytes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Changing subject completely um, to certification. Now, certification is a pretty common topic on VC. Um, we talk about it in very form, various forms. You know, the where we're, whether we're going to go for it, what we're going to go for, um, whether we've succeeded, or in my case, whether whether we've not. Uh, my my personal VCDX journeys hit a bit of a big roadblock. I've got as far as putting a whiteboard on my wall, um, but so far all that's happened to it is my daughter's uh, doodled on it. Um, but I, I've noticed that there was a, a comment on Twitter, I think it might have even been this morning, that a, a complaint that there's too many certifications now and may have to be um, updated too often. Uh, what do you guys think about that? Quit whining. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> but, you know, I think, I don't believe, unless you are a absolutely dedicated certification whore or a trainer, that you could now keep up with the, the full level of certifications from VMware. Yeah, I agree. My idea is pick a track and stick to it for my for just for the individual who's either working in the trenches or the specifics of their job uh, rely on that stuff. Yeah, I, I don't think it's really feasible because you know now you've got there's three different VCPs, three different VCAPs, three different. Um, design exams and potentially three different VC, VCDXs and I'm sure no one is going to be crazy enough to try and do all three um, but I'm sure someone probably will um, 
But that's, you know, is, that seems a lot. Yeah, but the thing with the whole certification thing is that if you pick a track, stick to it. That's as you said. But the thing is, you're go you're going to have to limit yourself, and yeah. and that also means that you're going to have to limit yourself in regards to which topics you want to focus on as well. And to be honest, that's that's a good thing, I think. Well, yeah. For instance, look at Microsoft. Uh, look at how many different certifications they have. That's yep. true. I mean, Could you take every single one? Absolutely not, unless you're crazy and that's all you did. But yeah, I think yeah. that's Cisco too. You wouldn't, know, you wouldn't know anything because all you all you did was to was to study for exams. You you wouldn't have time to work. Yeah. <laughs> true. You'd probably lose so, your job in the process. The thing is, if, if you sign up for for doing uh, a certification, VCP is one thing, whichever track you're on. But if you want to go through with the VCDX stuff or even just the VCAP stuff, you 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 have to kind of uh, make a deal with yourself that if you, if I'm going to do this, I'm actually going to have to maintain it as well. Yeah. And if you sign up for something, go through with it. If not, don't do it. <laughs> That's it. Not to knock it or anything, but at the time, uh, the, the time being, if you present that uh, you have a different kind of VCP or whatever to an employer, most of them won't even know what that is anyways. Yeah, you would probably be safer just to say, I've got a VCP, because yeah. an employer or a, um, a recruiter certainly isn't going to know. And I, I still haven't um, made too much penetration with my, uh, my spoof uh, Spoof exam to see if I can get a recruiter to put it into a job advert for me. <laughs> one day, one day you will see one that requires a vCenter certified unified networking technician. <laughs> It'll happen. It'll happen. And you'll have fifteen people apply to it because they said they have it. Yeah. Oh yeah. There'll be there'll be a whole group on LinkedIn before you know it. <laughs> now, do they require? I. Scheduled my VCAP DCA. I did that today, actually. Okay, you sat it. Oh, fantastic! How was it? Yeah. No, I, I no, I just scheduled it. Oh, right. okay, you booked. Yeah. So, come the end of November, I should get some kind of answer on that. Whether it's pass or fail, I don't know yet, but we'll see. So, I, I'll schedule it for November twenty eighth uh, because I need to actually travel to Oslo to do the exam. So. I need to book a flight and everything, so I've got to be pretty fairly certain that I will actually not fail it. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm not going to complain that I have to go down to Chicago and stuff to, <laughs> to do those exams. No flights are involved in my, uh, yeah, my case. Yeah, I'm planning the DCD right now, and I have to go to Germany. So. Yeah, yeah. But with regards to limiting yourself I, I also signed up for the uh, the view part of the VCP as well so I'm, I'm doing that at the end of October okay but would would you want to go through as far as doing the the, the advanced desktop ones now um, I, I, I don't know your exact workload but I know you've done some view stuff but you don't want to necessarily limit yourself to just being I, I can't see unless I worked for a desktop virtualization specialist like you know, Liquidware or RES or you know someone who has absolutely stuck their flag in the ground of VDI being absolute mutts nuts or something to do. Um, I, I don't think I'd ever want to specialise that far because I think that would limit me in terms of if the, the certifications do carry you know and do get the reputation as the VCPs have done um, of being the go-to cert to have. If you've got the desktop one, they're going to think you can't do server virtualization. Whilst yeah. I agree, the opposite may be true because I think if you can do desktops well, then in fact, you know, to an extent, a desktop estate is like a very large server estate. Um, so you can probably do servers pretty well as well. Um, but I'm thinking of it like a, a logical um, techie, not necessarily a recruiter, who's going to look at some letters and go, "Well, those letters don't match the letters that I want to look at." Yeah. I'm just doing the uh, the VCP part of it. I won't be uh, doing any advanced training or advanced certifications on on the VDI uh, part of the side of things at all. Uh, that's it's it's more of a it's more of a kind of I I do a lot of or quite a few view uh, installations as well, and I kind of 
just want to have that on my belt as well. But I, I'm not pursuing any advanced certifications there at all. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, then the other one I noticed, they get the infrastructure IAS one that looks kind of interesting. It's just an extension off of uh, the VCP with the vCloud stuff. Um, yeah, so that, is that kicking around heading down that path. Is it, is it got more uh, sort of wider bearing concepts around a, you know, a multi-tenant secure environment? That seems to be where it's headed. I know some people have taken the beta exams. I, I'm not, honestly not sure if it's out of beta yet. And if there's a regular exam, you can go and take for it. But I know they were passing out the new tracks and talking about the new stuff at VMworld in San Francisco. Yeah. All right. All right. Sounds, but, sounds interesting. It, it seems like the whole vCloud stack and the vSphere stack are going to meld into one entity in the future. At least that's the, the way the direction looks from the slides that they were showing. Yeah, it certainly the, it seems to be the way that they were going with the marketing from the 5.1 release. Um, that, you know, that they want people to buy the vCloud suite. They, they don't want people to buy vSphere anymore. Right. That's why they threw in the free upgrade from Enterprise Plus, plus, uh, plus licenses as well, so... True, true. Um, I should be interested to see how many people um, take them up on that. Um, you know, I come across Cloud Director periodically, um, even amongst my uh, enterprise customers. It's still definitely a, a minority deployment. Yeah. Do you, uh, did you see uh, any lab manager before that? A bit of, I mean, I, I used to run a small lab manager environment about my previous uh, role. Um, again, not a whole lot of lab manager. You'd had, you might well have a maybe a three host lab manager farm. Um, they certainly wouldn't be using it to to do anything more than that, and that was only if they had a lot of testing to do. Yeah, because I presented yesterday at the Chicago VMUG, and I was talking about pod based architecture and vCloud specifically, and I asked the attendants, I don't know, maybe 100 people in the room, one other person was running vCloud in production, the other people, there's maybe three or four that were thinking about it, and then I asked any of you running lab manager, and two, two people raised their hands and said, well, we did for a while. Yeah, yeah. again, I think lab manager had a pretty niche use. Um, for most people, you know, they were happy to give some developers some service, um, a lot of the lab manager and stage manager products at the time seemed to be around the idea that you had a set of virtual machines and that set of virtual machines was everything you needed for that application. Um, problem was, at the time when you were deploying um, things like stage manager, lifecycle manager and um, lab manager, was that most people, the majority of the dependencies for application were not virtual. Um, people didn't have virtualized domain controllers were still very much as an infancy. Um, mm -hmm. The virtualization at the network layer, so the firewalls and it virtualized load balancers. I remember having a massive argument with our um, network admin about the, the feasibility of virtualizing an F5. Um, and now, you know, this was long before F5 had a, a virtual appliance out. Um, they're, you know, they're virtual lo local traffic managers. Big IP, I think you mean. Yeah. 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 Sorry, I always used to call them just the F5s. But yeah, they're, they're, I mean, you know, he said, oh, no, they've got far too many custom chips. You could never virtualize it. That's just a stupid thing. <laughs> of course, now what have you got? You've got thousands of different lo uh, load balancers, uh, and, you know, the, the big IP local traffic manager is, is one of the more popular ones. Uh, yeah, and we're we're doing an RFP for load balancers, refreshing the data centers, and almost everybody we brought in has a physical option and a virtual option. Yeah, yeah. Do you, uh, just uh, just curious, do you take a look at Stingray, John? Um, I got to take a look. Though in our instance, the load balancer resides in the network, folks. Okay. So we're we're a user of it. We don't do the configuration. I know we've looked at a couple of the newer the newer players in there, such as A10 and. Um, Radware and stuff like that are on the on the list. Stingray's a new one out by River, uh, Riverbed, if you know them. Yeah, I'm sure you know them. Oh, okay. River, Riverbed is one that they looked at, yes. Okay. So. Yeah, it was called Zeus previously, and now it's renamed Stingray. Oh, I've heard that, yeah. Okay. I haven't, I haven't heard the Stingray. I definitely know. I've heard Zeus, and I heard Riverbed, so. Mm -hmm. 
But yeah, I think that that's the, the, been the major accelerator of doing things like this, though, that you can have the whole stack of an application virtualized. Before, but you could do that. When when you couldn't do that, it made absolutely no sense to try and you know on demand deploy part of the application because you were still waiting for the F5 configuration, or that you couldn't easily replicate the F5. Um, inside that sandbox environment, you had to have a physical sandbox environment as well. Um, so I, I suppose that is part of you know why the rapid development and cloud director in a, a development and testing environment is probably a bit more popular now. Yeah, especially uh, since you can fence them off now too. Yeah, we're looking into do into doing something like that, and we, we want to try to build our own our own kind of in-house uh, hands-on labs uh, for our customers to do workshops, to do product testing, to do whatever. Um, and we, we kind of want to build them like the VMworld hands-on labs kind of, uh, that kind of setting where our clients can bring their own devices if they want to or have uh, access points provided by us and then log on to all our labs and do training for their own people if they want to together with us uh, both with regards to testing new software and new solutions but also with trying to sell them something to be honest um, or show that show them VDI, show them backup solution, show them how vCloud Director works and that, it, it looks to be an interesting project to get on get to be able to design something like that from the ground up on our own. Yes, no, I've, um, it's something I've seen at more and more, oddly enough, more at the distribution layer than with resellers. Um, again, this is with my my limited channel experience. Um, mm-hmm. That generally speaking, the distributors have got the infrastructure to spare. Uh, however, if you've got you know the the infrastructure available to you to do it, then I think it's a very powerful sales tool. Um, yeah. Because you're able to do a proof of concept on demand, um, and you know it advertises it, and the fact that you're running it on VMware shows that you've got your own f- um, faith in the product that you're using it. Um, which well, we we, oh. we did that with a customer um, a couple of weeks ago. Actually, we we uh, we have a, a, a pretty large lab environment in our Oslo office. And we, we invited a, a local customer to come have a look at uh, running VDI with you. And they basically came along with their own thin client. And ju- I just put in the logon details for them. And then they log on. And I said, just okay, have fun. Test whatever you want. And they they had actually never had a vendor tell them to do whatever they wanted on a demo setup before. So they kind of went nuts and played around with it for an hour or so. We came back and went, Extremely happy that they were were able to do uh, their own testing on a on a live product. Fantastic! Yeah, the partner that one of the partners that we work with has a neat little lab set up doing where they can go in and do demos, bring in your own workloads, and actually get some lab time to try before you buy. It's kind of a cool concept. Yeah, that's what we're looking to do as well. Yeah, uh, I think it's uh, it seems to be the next the next big thing for a reseller to be able to do. Um, you know, where previously they might have, um, what's a good example? You've got a whole load of um, cloud-based tools that will offer a live demo uh, on their website. And that's great, um, but not everything is applicable to have a live demo of. You can't necessarily have a live demo of a storage system or a live demo of a backup system because um, it would need to be reset periodically and it wouldn't really work out as well. So being able to do a, a live demo that you can reset um, and just have someone come in via, you know, Citrix connection or any form of sort of terminal services type broker uh, into an environment, do something with it and reset it yeah. that is um, available to not just the hardware vendors themselves. I mean, Microsoft have had live labs for ages, um, you know, going back 10 years. I, I remember connecting to a Microsoft lab instance and yeah. the same for the, the VMware hands-on labs. Um, but to be able to bring that power down the channel to a reseller is fantastic. Yeah. 
I'm looking forward to actually designing it. I need, I need to get all the hardware in place first, so that should be be interesting to see what I can come up with there from different vendors and whatever uh, hardware vendors we might get on board might get some some uh, some publicity out of it out of it if if we get it done. So we'll see how how far we get along with it. It's uh, it's in the planning phases uh, planning phase as it is right now. So. That definitely brings a new meaning to value add. Yeah, exactly. Well, guys, with that in mind, I'm going to wrap up this V-Soup. Actually, I forgot what number it is, uh, Chris. 25. Uh, 26. 26. 26? I might have said 25 on the intro, but I think it's 26. Okay. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us for V-Soup 26. Remember to check us out on vsoup.net, uh, Stitcher, and iTunes. John, uh, had John Walsh with us today. Thanks a lot for joining us, John. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. It was our pleasure. Um, so we'll see you guys at VMworld Europe. No. Yep, site cat. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> <laughs> Not John. Or me. Okay. I'll be a potato. <laughs> or a tiger prawn. Okay, guys. Good night.